Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. The Justice Department today released a detailed list of what it took from former President Trump's home. The former president responds. More fallout from Biden's primetime speech and a reverse course on what the president thinks of Trump supporters. The Department of Veteran Affairs prepares to provide abortions in as many locations as possible, regardless of state law. The IRS reportedly sent millions of stimulus checks to prisoners, potentially thousands of them to criminals serving life sentences for rape and murder. A man points a gun at Argentina's vice president at point-blank range. Argentine authorities are calling it an assassination attempt. And the college football playoff format undergoes a significant change. Gone are the days of four teams. We'll go over the new model. Today, the Justice Department released a detailed list of what the FBI took from former President Trump's home. It included over 11,000 non-classified documents and photographs without classified markings. The list included over 100 classified documents and an executive grant of clemency to Republican operative Roger Stone. There were also newspapers, clothing, empty folders marked classified, military documents and books. A Trump spokesperson says that the list shows that the raid was not a confined search, but instead a smash and grab. Florida federal judge Eileen Cannon ordered the release of the list. She's deciding whether or not to appoint a special master to check for documents protected by attorney-client privilege or executive privilege. Such documents would have to be returned to Trump. And Jeff Clark served in the Department of Justice during the Trump administration. He now joins NTD's Arlene Richards to discuss Trump's request for a special master to review documents seized in the raid. Jeff Clark, thank you for coming. Sure, glad to be here, Arlene. Yesterday, Judge Eileen Cannon heard or arguments on whether or not she should appoint a special master to review the documents that were seized from President Trump's home in Florida. What do you think the judge should be considering when deciding whether or not to appoint the special master? Well, I think, Arlene, first everyone should understand that uh, judges have wide latitude in deciding whether to appoint special masters. I think this is an appropriate circumstance to do so because it interjects some judicial neutrality into the situation. It's not just a different part of DOJ reviewing Trump's documents and deciding whether they're privileged or protected for some reason. It's a, it's a neutral judicial official. And why is this special master important to Trump? I think because of the neutrality, right? It's, it's a check. We know that uh, you know Magistrate Judge Reinhardt, who issued the criminal warrant, actually had recused himself from the civil case against Trump. So it's hard to imagine why he thought he should not recuse uh, on this uh, ostensibly criminal matter. So having a, you know a judge like uh, uh, you know the judge who who has this request for a special master appoint uh, this, uh, a special master if that's what she decides to do, and then that person looks into it, you're going to get you know review apart from the Biden administration. You're going to get a more neutral judge who doesn't have any conflict issues, uh, or a more neutral judicial official looking at the matter and deciding whether uh, Trump's claims are are valid under the law or not. Now let's talk about the new information that was introduced by the DOJ. They say that one of Trump's attorneys 
basically lied in response to a subpoena and withheld classified documents. Could that potentially have any impact on President Trump in the underlying investigation? So I think, Arlene, the first thing I would do there is, is take a step back and just tell you that, look, um, you know, there's a substantive uh, kind of crime issue. Suppose like a federal official takes a bribe. Then if you can't get someone on that, you look at process crimes. Did they lie when they were interviewed? Something like that. To get into document issues, that's like a tertiary level. We're just getting farther and farther afield uh, from an actual issue. It just looks like a, a, a you know, a get Trump uh, kind of situation. So, you know, I think that this issue of, uh, you know, the, whether the lawyers have any jeopardy, that's like, you know, four or five levels out in a concentric circle of things that are, are you know, distanced from, from a, you know, primary investigation. And from that perspective, I think that, uh, you know, the, having a special master would be very useful in getting a look at that to see whether it is a kind of witch hunt or, you know, whether there's uh, something there. I tend to think it's the former and not the latter. Now, one of the other things that the DOJ has said is that President Trump doesn't have any right to keep any classified documents because his executive privilege was waived by President Biden. Does it matter that President Trump has said he's classified documents? So I think they are, Arlene, that it's very dangerous, uh, and, and many legal commentators have made this same point. I've made this point in writings and uh, in filings that, uh, you know, President Biden purports to waive the privilege of President Trump. Imagine President Trump had come in and started 2017 and waived executive privilege over President Obama's discussions with Eric Holder. There would have been howls from the left from here. Uh, you know, all around the world, around the world in, in uh, you know, uh, thousands of days of complaining from the, from the leftist media. I don't think that President Biden has the power to waive executive privilege for President Trump. That's a very serious issue. And in fact, in a case that went to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court was very clear that that's an open question that, you know, might need to be resolved at some point in the future. In a previous interview that you gave, you said that you feel like this investigation is highly politicized. Why do you think that? Well, I think all of the investigations into President Trump uh, to date have been highly politicized. So this is nothing new. Uh, so we had, you know, Russiagate investigation. We had uh, impeachment number one over uh, Ukraine. We had uh, impeachment number two over uh, January 6th. We had, uh, after the president left, left office, which is unprecedented, uh, we have, uh, you know, questions of a separate investigation about January 6th after the impeachment failed. That really should be something that's, you know, as lawyers call it, you know, res judicata. And now we have this document investigation that involves the National Archives. Uh, you know, maybe this one somehow magically is not politicized, but I highly doubt it. I think it's been a long chain of efforts to uh, demonize President Trump and make him a target. And there's a famous, uh, you know, Soviet saying by Lavrenti Beria that, you know, show me uh, the man and I'll show you the crime. It looks like that's the approach, not the approach of actually seeing evidence and then following where it leads, but rather trying to look for something to pin on President Trump. And I just think that's anti-American and totally unconstitutional, Arlene. Jeff Clark, thank you. Thank you. A day after calling MAGA Republicans a threat to the country, President Biden today says something different about Trump supporters. NTD's Iris Tao has more on the fallout of his primetime speech. 
asked if he considers all Trump supporters a threat to the nation. President Biden said this on Friday. I don't consider any Trump supporter to be a threat to the country. I do think anyone who calls for the use of violence refuses to acknowledge when an election has been won. That is a threat to democracy. That comes less than a day after Biden attacked what he calls MAGA Republicans in a primetime speech on Thursday. The Republican Party today is dominated, driven, and intimidated by Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans. And that is a threat to this country. Those remarks getting polarized reactions. While Democratic House Speaker Nancy Pelosi calls in an inspiring speech that makes clear our democracy is on the line, Republican Congressman Louis Gohmert tells NTD he thinks Biden's speech is to set up conservatives so that they can be the scapegoat for anything that happens. And we have a government that wants to get rid of any chance that conservatives have of coming back into power. The backdrop of the speech also comes under fire. If you could not have a more fascistic setup with the red and black background. Others criticize Biden for placing Marines behind him. If you don't want the so-called MAGA Republicans or any Republicans to be politicizing the military, then you shouldn't do it yourself. The White House, however, said Friday that having Marines during the speech was intended to demonstrate the deep and abiding respect uh, the president has for these service, service members. And Biden's Thursday speech will be followed by a Saturday rally in the same state by the mega Republican at the center of his speech, former President Donald Trump. Trump is rallying there with gubernatorial candidate Doug Mastriano and Senate candidate Mehmet Oz, or was dubbed the entire Pennsylvania Trump ticket. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. And an update on J6. A retired New York Police Department officer was sentenced to 10 years in prison. That's because of his involvement in the January 6th Capitol breach. Retired NYPD officer Thomas Webster was sentenced to 10 years in prison yesterday. Federal prosecutors had recommended a prison sentence of over 17 years. Webster was involved in the Capitol breach and used a metal flagpole to assault one of the police officers. His prison sentence is the longest so far among roughly 250 people who have been punished for their involvement in the Capitol breach. Webster was the first January 6th defendant to present a self-defense argument. A jury rejected his claim that he was defending himself. And the Department of Veteran Affairs says it will be offering abortion services to veterans regardless of state laws. This is the Biden administration's latest measure following the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade. Like all states, the VA will provide abortions if the mother's health is at risk. Where it differs from some states is in offering abortion in the case of rape or incest. Whether the mother's health is endangered will be determined on a case-by-case basis. And rape or incest will depend on self-reporting and won't require a police report. The service will be available to veterans as well as VA beneficiaries, which includes spouses and dependents. The rules will go into effect immediately after they are published in the Federal Register. The department says they'll provide abortions in as many locations as possible. And the IRS reportedly sent millions of stimulus checks to prisoners. A congressman says inmates got a total of over a billion dollars. 
The IRS reportedly told Republican Representative Don Bacon that they sent out $1.3 billion worth of stimulus checks to inmates. That's according to the Washington Free Beacon. NTD called the IRS to confirm whether that's true, but the agent didn't provide the information on the phone and later didn't reply to our email. Over 160,000 of those stimulus checks reportedly went to people serving life sentences without the possibility of parole. And over 1 million inmates received stimulus checks, according to the letter obtained by Representative Bacon. A study conducted by the Sentencing Project found that life sentences are mostly given to criminals convicted of homicide and rape. Michael Sullivan is a former IRS agent. He says he doesn't think people serving life sentences should have received those checks. But according to him, the IRS has no way of knowing the status of inmates. They can do absolutely nothing. The IRS computer systems are so old right now at this time, uh, they probably couldn't hold any other information. When the checks went out, Republican Senator Bill Cassidy proposed an amendment that would have declared inmates ineligible to receive the checks. However, Senate Democrats voted against it in a 50 to 49 vote. The money for the checks was provided by the government, meaning American tax dollars. I think the Americans think the government is wasting a lot of money, sloppy programming, and they don't put filters on the things they need to put filters on. And it's only like the money is monopoly money and paper money. They just give it away without any accountability to it. And I think a lot of it really is just to buy votes. Among the people who received the checks was the Boston Marathon bomber. It's estimated that $80 billion worth of stimulus checks were paid to fake businesses. Former U.S. Attorney Matthew Schneider called it the biggest fraud in a generation. Sullivan the says day, that happened the because the IRS simply sent out checks to anyone with a Social Security number. Reporting by Arian Pastar, NTD News. An actress, Jane Fonda, said today that she's been diagnosed with lymphoma a form of cancer in the immune system. She says she's started chemotherapy treatments, which will last for six months. The 84-year-old says this is a very treatable cancer and that she's handling the treatments quite well. And Republican lawmakers are voicing their concerns about the outcome of Alaska's special election. About 60% of voters voted Republican, but a Democrat was elected using ranked choice voting. NTD's Jason Perry has that story. Many thought a Republican was sure to win the Alaska special election after Republican nominees earned almost 60% of the votes. But a former state lawmaker, Mary Peltola, a Democrat, beat former Alaska Governor Sarah Palin by about three percentage points. This was the first time the state had used ranked choice voting in which voters list candidates in order of preference on the ballot. Republican lawmakers voiced their concerns, including Senator Tom Cotton, who tweeted, 60% of Alaska voters voted for a Republican, but thanks to a convoluted process and ballot exhaustion, which disenfranchises voters, a Democrat, quote, won. While Congressman Adam Kinzinger of Illinois, also a Republican, responded to Cotton saying, ranked choice voting gives all Americans a voice and not the extremes of a party, so you'd be out of luck. No wonder you don't like it. If a group of citizens get together and they, they cast votes and their candidate gets the most votes, well, why wouldn't that person be elected? I spoke with special counsel for the Thomas More Society, Eric Cardall, who explained that a candidate who would win in a normal election could lose in a ranked choice voting system. So let's say I have a favorite candidate and I want to vote, but I don't like any other candidates and I don't want to vote for them. 
So traditionally in America, you get a vote for one candidate and your vote counts. Now we're being told that if you don't vote for a second and third candidate, your first vote might be thrown out. And then if you don't have a second or third vote, you're completely disenfranchised. Cardall said there was another issue at play. The, the bigger concern is you're trusting experts who designed this ranked choice voting system to, and they're telling us we'll be better off. Well, I don't see any proof that we're better off and, and we shouldn't be changing things because experts are telling us we'll make life better. We reached out to the Alaska Division of Elections for comment, but we didn't hear back before airtime. Jason Perry, NCD News. And now turning our attention to Argentina. Authorities there are reporting an assassination attempt against the country's vice president. A man pointed a gun at her outside her home yesterday. In Argentina's capital city of Buenos Aires on Thursday, a man aimed a handgun at point-blank range toward Argentine Vice President Cristina Fernandez. Fernandez was exiting a car surrounded by supporters outside her home. A witness explains what happened. I was there. We were greeting Cristina when this happened. At first, I didn't know what was going on, but I heard the noise when he triggered the gun. I didn't understand that it was a gun until the security jumped on him. Cristina didn't know either because she said, leave him alone, he dropped something. But no, he dropped the gun because a fellow hit him in the arm. Authorities detained the suspect at the scene and identified him as a Brazilian national. It appears that the gun didn't fire when the trigger was pulled. The vice president is on trial for alleged corruption in public works. A prosecutor has recently called for a 12-year sentence. Fernandez is a powerful figure in Argentine politics and was president from 2007 to 2015. She also faced corruption charges during her presidency. This comes while Argentina deals with social instability caused by spiraling inflation. The country's president commented on the incident. This is the most serious event we have gone through since Argentina returned to democracy. Within the context of a massive crowd of people outside the vice president's home, a man aimed at her head with a firearm and pulled the trigger. Cristina remains alive because of a reason that has yet to be confirmed, technically. The weapon had five bullets, but it did not fire despite being triggered. The Argentine president declared Friday a national holiday in response to the incident, and thousands of people gathered in Buenos Aires to show support for the vice president. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. Coming up, the new jobs report is out, and the need for more workers is rising slightly. And Apple's iPhone overtaking Android and taking the lead in the U.S., accounting for over half of active smartphones. That and more after this short break. Employers haven't been as gung-ho about hiring people over the past few weeks, but the need for more workers is still rising slightly. According to the latest government report, the U.S. added 315,000 jobs in August. That's higher than what many economists had expected, but it's still noticeably lower than the 526,000 positions in July. 
Last month's jobs report will be among the main factors the Federal Reserve will look at as it weighs how much to raise interest rates to curb inflation. Earlier this week, the Bureau of Labor Statistics reported there were nearly two jobs available per person looking for work. And to talk more about the jobs report, Don Moss spoke with Julia Pollack. She's the chief economist at job search firm ZipRecruiter. Julia, great having you on as always. 315 jobs added in August, definitely less than the previous month, but still above expectations. How do you feel about this month's jobs report? This was a Goldilocks jobs report. It was about as good as it could be. Uh, we have very strong, robust, broad-based gains. You know, that's almost twice as many jobs uh, that, uh, as the economy added each month in 2019. So a big number. Yes, a slowdown from the month before, but, a st but still a very, very good and encouraging number. But there were really great things, uh, you know, below the headline number, uh, like the increase in labor force participation. And that was the, the biggest story of this report. People are coming back to work. Now, let me ask you this, though. Unemployment rate, right, rose to 3.7 percent, increased of uh, 344,000. And we're hearing about Snapchat layoffs, Bed Bath & Beyond as well. And another thing, weekly work hours went down a tenth of a percent. So I don't know, is, is the labor market at, at a turning point right now? think so. I think it's just slowly, gradually tilting back to normal. Uh, we have now hit several big milestones. We saw private sector employment recover, then overall employment recover, and now even the service sector recover to pre-COVID levels. With the jobs hole filled, we should expect job gains to go back to a more normal pace. Now tell me, what's behind the people coming back to work? So anytime the unemployment rate is below 4%, we do actually see participation tick up usually. And that's because more people will try to find a job if it becomes easier to do so. Uh, you know, frankly, it's been very strange that labor force participation has been so low uh, with these huge payroll job gains. And uh, perhaps it was just a statistical blip and the labor force was, was stronger in these past few months all along. Are people working multiple jobs? Yes, yeah, so we have seen the number of multiple job holders increase in recent months. And that usually happens whenever there's a tight labor market with, with big job gains. And that's because that number is driven less by need and more by opportunity. Uh, so people take on multiple jobs when there are multiple jobs to be had. So what's behind that, people working fewer hours? Yeah, that's an interesting one. Uh, that may just be because we're seeing employers add more workers. And so the average number of hours worked per worker can come back down again to more normal levels. Uh, before that, many companies were so overstaffed that they were uh, overworking the workers they had and giving them way too many shifts. Uh, so perhaps we're you know, getting back to, to normal and allowing workers to have a little bit more work-life balance uh, and a little, bit more, a little bit less stress and, and understaffing. Uh, you know, I think there is sort of a, a negative story in this report, too. There is something uh, to be concerned about, and that's that while employment has recovered, you know, almost across the board, uh, there's one place where it is not, where it's actually sliding backwards, and that is in our public schools. 
and you know, we just got news this week that test results, that literacy and uh, numeracy test results, reading and, and, and uh, writing comprehension have, um, and math proficiency, sorry, have, have gone down uh, and, and erased two decades of gains. So we know there's a, a really serious need in education. We need to get back to school with fully staffed schools, with the libraries open, with all the services being offered that kids need to thrive. It doesn't look as though we're going to get there. It looks as though we have a lot of work to do. Now on that point, there's a teacher shortage, right? How does that fit in the, the whole picture? Yeah, there are more than 360,000 fewer staff in our public schools than there were before COVID. And there are many reasons to see why that's the case. Uh, local government employees are seeing the slowest wage growth. Uh, we're also seeing lots and lots of workers transition out of in-person roles and into office jobs that have now become remote jobs. Uh, schools, of course, remain an in-person role uh, environment where there's limited schedule flexibility. And so schools ideally would have to make up for that by offering higher wage growth. Uh, instead, they're at the bottom of the pack. All right. Thank you for coming on today. Julia Pollack, Chief Economist at Zip Recruiter. Pleasure talking to you. Thanks for having me on, Joe. Amazon tried to get rid of its first union, but in the end, it was unsuccessful. The union is called the Amazon Labor Union, and back in April, over 2,600 workers in a Staten Island warehouse joined it. Amazon tried to get rid of it by submitting a filing to the National Labor Relations Board. The filing contained 25 objections. It argued that labor organizers intimidated workers into joining the union. But after 24 days of hearings, the board concluded that the union should prevail. The board says Amazon didn't prove that the union engaged in objectionable conduct. And Apple is apparently doing something right with the new iPhone. It now surpasses Android among smartphone users in the United States. NTD's Sean Marshall has more. The Apple iPhone market has been growing. Apple has overtaken Android devices to account for more than half of smartphones used in the U.S. According to data from CounterPoint Research, Let's hear what the key differences might be from tech expert Burton Kelso and learn what type of phone he prefers. I got an iPhone <laughs> and that's interesting from a tech guy perspective because a lot of tech experts prefer Android because of the ability to customize those devices. But for me, I just need a phone that's going to be able to achieve what I need. So I just need to be able to check email, surf the web and interact with the apps that I use for myself and for my business. Rocco likes the rewards he gets from Apple, which he can apply toward the purchase of newer iPhone versions. Right now, he isn't happy with his current iPhone, but says he's a loyal customer. I would get like a good year, maybe 14 months out of it, and then after that, I gotta buy a new charger, or I gotta do research on what's the next one gonna be. Like right now, I, this phone does not charge well, and I've already been told that I got to uh, be patient and wait for the 14 to drop in September. So for the past four or five months, I've been dealing with charging issues and just, you know, the issues I've been dealing with since the, uh, the since I had the four. Kelso has another reason why he prefers iPhone. As far as my iPhone is concerned, I don't have to worry about cyber threats because Apple does an excellent job of making sure that there aren't any malicious apps uploaded to the App Store, whereas with the Google Play Store, there's always that chance that you could download an important app that may actually be a virus or malware. 
consumer research firm Strategic Vision found that before even announcing the release of a vehicle, Apple ranked third among respondents, saying that they would definitely consider an Apple car. And over 50% of Tesla owners would definitely consider a future Apple vehicle. Sean Marshall, NTD News. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, a former California teacher explains why teachers are increasingly leaving the teachers' union. And the college football playoff format has undergone a significant change. Gone are the days of four teams. NTD's Dave Martin goes over the new model when we return. California Teachers Association has become one of the most influential special interest groups in California politics. But more and more teachers are leaving the union. One former teacher explains why. Over 15% of teachers have left the California Teachers Association in recent years. It's predicted that 4,000 more will leave this year alone. Rebecca Friedrichs, a former teacher and local union leader, explains to California Insider's C.A. McCarami the reason for the exodus. The unions have lost their way. So they have a mission, but they're not staying on, they're not staying in their lane. So um, teachers are seeing that they're not being represented, their, their, their values aren't being represented by the unions anymore, and that's why they're walking away. Friedrich says the teachers' union has been involved in too many political agendas instead of prioritizing children first. They're involved in this, all of this critical race theory, and they're involved in um, the whole um, transgender um, telling teachers, you know, you can't call them boys and girls anymore. You know, maybe they're all transgenders and, and really putting teachers in a very uncomfortable position where they're told you know they they have to um, if a child wants to use a different pronoun a child wants to change their gender the teacher is told you have to do that with the child behind the parents back she says a good professional teacher would work and communicate with the parents to do what's best for the child there's something I call the education triangle, and in that triangle is the child at the top, and then the other two angles are the parent and the teacher. And if we work together in the education triangle, the child's going to learn well, the child's going to be healthy, the child's not going to be suicidal or all these other problems. When she served as a local union leader for three years, she said they were all wonderful people and wanted to do what was right for the children. But later she found out that elements of politics made its way in from the state and federal level. According to Friedrichs, in the past all teachers were required to pay union dues as a condition for employment. Because people thought it was unconstitutional, there were several lawsuits. She also filed a lawsuit in 2016, which eventually led to the end of forced union contributions from non-union members. But the effects of the union's decisions aren't without consequences. The system's so corrupted and so uh, full of accusations that these poor teachers, uh, most of the teachers I know have or are close to having PTSD from the job um, because discipline's out of control thanks to policies that were, that were pushed by teacher unions and um, uh, teachers are constantly being accused and so it, they're just afraid. 
Friedrichs founded an organization called For Kids and Country with a mission to, quote, restore our educational system to the excellence, morality, and patriotism envisioned by our American founders. Eileen Ang, NTD News, California. A new type of crime is increasing across cities in the Los Angeles area where the criminals are targeting the elderly. NTD's Jackie Rios has that story. The Glendale Police Department says they're experiencing an increased number of distraction thefts in their city. It's easy to become a victim, but there are certain things you can do to ensure your safety. Field training officer Ernesto Torres from the Glendale Police Department said distraction thefts are being seen in residential areas. He explained why and who the con artists are targeting. A distraction theft is uh, commonly when a suspect will seek out a victim and distract them, trick them, if you will, into either getting their confidence or getting their trust. And then as, in return, they'll commit a theft. So what is happening here is we have the suspects driving around, you know, in the city, and they find most likely is the elderly, see that they're wearing jewelry, and they'll target them. Torres said the confidence scam follows a standard script. The suspect will begin contact by asking for help with directions, then thank the victim by giving them fake jewelry. The suspect will proceed with physical contact, kissing the victim's hands or giving them a hug. This trick is not only to gain the victim's confidence, but also to trick onlookers into believing the victim knows the suspect. Finally, the theft takes place as the suspect swaps the victim's real jewelry with the fake jewelry. No, it appears to be straight jewelry, either necklaces, rings, pendants, that type of thing. Thieves appear to target residential areas which are more isolated than parks or commercial areas. Torres noted the suspects consistently are not parking their vehicles. One of the suspects is running the car while the secondary suspect targets the victim. There is victims that are probably out there that haven't realized that their jewelry has been taken. Uh, be vigilant, be conscious of who's approaching you. Uh, ask yourself, why is this person talking to me the word they're talking to me? You know, I hate to say this, but the days of walking up to strangers and giving them hugs are no longer here. Um, there is no reason why a person should be grabbing your hand and kissing your hand being complete strangers. Any hugs from a complete stranger is a huge red flag. Um, again, if you happen to see cars that are just stopping in the middle of the residential areas and people are getting out and just walking straight up to your, you know, to the elderly, if you will, that's another big flag. While distraction thefts are generally nonviolent, they are still a crime you need to know about. You're encouraged to do all you can to avoid becoming a victim. Jackie Rios, NTD News, California. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. The college football playoffs is expanding from four to 12 teams starting as early as 2024 and no later than 2026, according to multiple sources. The change was approved by a vote of the university presidents who oversee college football's postseason model. The 12 teams will be comprised of the six highest ranked conference champions plus six at-large bids. The change is the biggest yet to college football's postseason model. For the past eight seasons, the playoff format was made of four at-large teams. Previous to that, the BCS model, which started in 1999, used a formula to determine the top two teams to meet for the title. 
The process still has to be finalized by the 10 FBS conference commissioners who make up the CFP Management Committee. In tennis news, the Williams sisters played their first doubles match in more than four years Thursday night at the U.S. Open, but lost in straight sets. The duo, who've won 14 Grand Slam titles in doubles play, played in the Arthur Ashe Stadium, the first time a first-round doubles contest has ever been played on the esteemed court. Serena, who has strongly hinted at retirement following the U.S. Open, hugged her older sister after the loss. The pair previously won this event in 1999 and again in 2009. Elsewhere at the U.S. Open, 22-time Grand Slam champion Rafael Nadal dropped the first set before rolling to a win over Fabio Fognini. The match was interrupted briefly in the fourth set on a bizarre play when Nadal reached so low for a backhand that his racket hit the hard surface and ricocheted right back, hitting him square in the nose, which immediately drew blood. Nadal appeared a bit dazed and was treated for several minutes before play resumed. And in women's singles, Ukraine's Marta Kostyuk refused to shake hands with Belarus's Viktoria Azarenka after a straight sets loss. Instead, she offered a racket tap. Kostyuk later explained, saying, I don't know any single person from Belarus who condemned the war publicly and the actions of their government, so I don't feel I can support this. The U.S. has sanctioned Belarus for facilitating Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And in baseball last night, Braves rookie starter Spencer Strider struck out 16 batters over eight shutout innings in their 3-0 win over the Rockies. The record amount is the most by a Braves player in a nine-inning game. The team record for most strikeouts in an extra inning game is 18 by Hall of Famer Warren Spahn, who accomplished the feat in a 15-inning contest all the way back in 1952. With the win, the Braves trail the Mets by three games in the NL East. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And coming up, is China expanding its influence in the South Pacific? What a retired U.S. Army colonel is warning after a key island nation turns away a U.S. military vessel. And environment activists breached the U.K. Parliament, and they brought superglue with them. And over in the Pacific, a small nation made up of hundreds of islands this week turned away a U.S. Coast Guard ship and earlier a British Royal Navy ship, both of them making routine stops. The Solomon Islands says it's not accepting any foreign military ships for now. The island's administration says they're updating their procedures for docking and need some time. But it's raising concerns, as earlier this year, the nation was found to have signed a secret security agreement with the Chinese Communist regime. What could this mean for peace in the region and for the U.S.? Earlier today, I spoke with national security expert John Mills, a retired U.S. Army colonel and former director of cybersecurity with the Department of Defense, for his analysis. John Mills, welcome to our show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Stephanie. An honor to be with you. Now, the Solomon Islands has just this week suspended visits from U.S. vessels. It reportedly told the U.S. it's reviewing updates to its protocols and procedures. Do you think this has anything to do with the Solomon Islands' new pact with China? 
Uh, well, yes, it has everything to do with this pact. Uh, clearly, the Chinese have established a footprint. I don't think you can look at this any other way than this is essentially a forward naval operating base now uh, for the Chinese. And uh, it's uh, very unwise that we pulled our one-third of an ambassador. We had one ambassador covering three republics uh, right in the middle of this. This is a very bad situation, and it's all about uh, China's uh, pact with the uh, Solomon Islands. And the Solomon Islands also reportedly turned away UK vessels. Do you think this signals some kind of shift in alliance more generally, away from the West? Uh, absolutely. Prime Minister Manasa Sagavare, uh, uh, he's corrupt. Uh, he is not popular among his population. Um, they almost overthrew him last fall and forced him out of office. I think Australia very unwisely swooped in in what they were thinking or declaring as a peacekeeping mission. All they did was maintain the rule of this uh, corrupt uh, prime minister who has sided with China against the wishes and will of his people. So, uh, yes, this is uh, the Iron Curtain has fallen and descended upon the Solomon Islands. Uh, we have lost and they are now in the Chinese sphere of influence. And how concerned, then, should the U.S. and its allies be about this? Well, uh, lo looking at the map, and the second island chain is all important. And from bottom to top, that includes Palau, Ulithi, Guam, Tinian, and Saipan, the last three being sovereign American territory. We need those bases to generate and project military capabilities to defend Taiwan. Being in the Solomon Islands places China behind the second island chain in military strategy and tactics. This is, this is most d dangerous and concerning. Effectively, China has turned what, what we would call our left flank. They have turned our left flank facing them in the Pacific. This is a very, very precarious situation that needs to be addressed immediately. What could the Solomon Islands move mean for peace in the region? Uh, I think it destabilizes the, the region. It does everything but peace in the region. China is staking a claim against uh, the, the West and America. And uh, we need to, as soon as possible, appoint a dedicated ambassador and uh, let the Solomon Islands know this is not good for their economy, this is not good for regional stability, and uh, make a profound statement against them uh, to try and bring them back out from behind the Iron Curtain. And is that how the U.S. should respond? Is there anything else? Yeah, it was very distressing that uh, uh, although uh, Blinken had made a number of comments, for some reason, the existing ambassador, uh, it was so important that she was pulled as an ambassador to be a second or third level uh, senior uh, in U.S. aid. I don't know what was so urgent and compelling that we would pull a U.S. ambassador to a, a, a three countries. Again, that ambassador, she, she oversaw three countries. Now we have no ambassador. We, these countries don't even have one third of a U.S. ambassador. That's a statement of does the U.S. really care? So it was a very unwise move by the Biden administration. And why would the Solomon Islands choose to align themselves with China rather than the West? 
Well, I think in this case, it's clear that the Prime Minister Manasseh Sagavare has been bought off and is, uh, you have to consider him corrupt. I don't think that is over the top or unwise to make comments like that. From all indicators, his population is very pro-West, was pro-Taiwan, and yet he went against the wishes of the people. It was clear that the Belt and Road initiatives and financial incentives uh, tilted this Prime Minister to make this decision. He was not popular. He is not popular. And he has gone against the wishes of his people. What could that lead to in a worst case scenario? Well, it could lead uh, to that island chain or those islands essentially being subject to attack from Chinese uh, naval and air forces based in the Solomons. This is World War II all over again. This is what the Japanese were trying to do to threaten Australia and actually move toward Hawaii is uh, going through the Solomons. My grandfather fought in Guadalcanal during the Second World War. This is just uh, we are repeating the mistakes of the Second World War all over again. All right. Thank you so much, John Mills, retired Army colonel and former director of cybersecurity for the Department of Defense. All right. Thank you so much, Stephanie. It's an honor to be with you. And the Solomon Islands prime minister has previously called criticism of its China security deal very insulting. The Pacific nation also reportedly threatened to ban foreign journalists if they are not respectful in covering stories about the country's ties with China. And in the UK, environmental protest group Extinction Rebellion targeted Parliament today. Its supporters posing as tourists gained access to the House of Commons chamber, and they brought glue with them. Here's NTD's Joy Duguid with more on this. Videos and photos posted on social media by Extinction Rebellion climate change demonstrators show five of its supporters inside the House of Commons chamber holding banners reading Let the People Decide and Citizens Assembly Now. The group said three people who booked on an official tour of the building glued themselves in a chain around the speaker's chair before they read out a speech in support of a so-called citizens' assembly to act on climate matters. We are in crisis, and what goes on in this room every single day makes a joke out of all of us. One protester climbed up scaffolding inside the parliamentary estate near Westminster Hall and attached a banner to it. Two of its members also used bike locks to chain themselves to the railings to the new Palace Yard entrance gates. Extinction Rebellion said around 50 people were involved in the protest at the Palace of Westminster. The Commons and Lords are in recess until Monday. The incident is likely to raise security concerns around how visitors to the estate, who are routinely screened by guards upon entry, were able to access the room in which the Prime Minister and MPs regularly speak. Joy Duguid, NTD News. Coming up, animal workers help maintain a New York City park by doing something that they love. And their connection to the city is closer than many people realize. We'll be back after a short break. As the calendar moves towards September, summer jobs are wrapping up. That includes a unique summer landscaping job in a New York City park. 
for goats help to save some green space. Lots of folks who took summer jobs or internships in New York City have started to return home. That includes hey, Cheech. Cheech, Eleanor, Big G, and Skittles. Hey, Skittles. The Gotham Hi. class of 2022 at Manhattan's Riverside Park headed back upstate after what looked like a lazy summer, but actually had a big role in the city park's ecosystem. We manage about six miles of Hudson River Parkland and Riverside Park, so it's a lot for us to maintain. Uh, so we thought it would be a great idea to have these, uh, these critters to kind of come and help us with um, invasive species removal. Riverside Park stretches for about 400 acres along Manhattan's west side, along the Hudson River. Like any green space, curbing invasive plants that endanger other green life and wildlife, like poison ivy and porcelain berry, is essential. But some northern areas of the park have pretty steep slopes that are tough to reach. Enter the goats. Hi. Marcus Caceres is a field supervisor for the Riverside Park Conservancy, which welcomed the goats for a third summer. With their help, we were able to lower and stunt the growth of the invasive species population to make sure that our native species have room to grow and also room to thrive as well, too. The quartet arrived in June from Green Goats Farm in Rhinebeck, New York, about 100 miles north of the city, to begin summer jobs in this two-acre enclosure. In two months, they chomped down thousands of pounds of weeds, moving toward eliminating them completely without the use of chemicals. The goat's social nature providing other benefits. They provide such a mental health service for people who want to just come and enjoy the park and then just having the time to spend, you know, share a heart-to-heart -heart moment with the goat. New York's Gotham moniker actually means goat town in Old English and originated as an early 19th century put down as goats roam the undeveloped Upper West Side of Manhattan. But this summer, it's a name the park claimed proudly. You sure don't disappoint, huh? And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.